All right. Good. Whatever time of day it is where you are, uh, this is Unstandardized English. I am your host, Dr. J.P.V. Gerald. Uh, if you are new to this, uh, this podcast seeks justice for the racially, linguistically, and neurologically minoritized, which basically means we talk about racism, we talk about whiteness, we talk about discrimination in language, uh, we talk about ableism, especially for people who are neurodivergent and that sort of thing. That, of course, are these are things that you would know if you've listened to this before. So what we're going to do, this is the beginning of season four here. I don't like to, I took breaks the last two summers and then people stopped listening to the show and that's not ideal. So, uh, I did put a couple of episodes out over the summer, but, uh, this is where we're really starting. And, 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 um, this one's important because, you know, my book is actually coming out as you, well, depends on when you listen to this, but at the end of September, uh, should have it in my hands in the next month or so, which is pretty cool. You should get one too. If you're a patron, uh, of a certain amount, so which is to say above $10 a month, then I will sign a book for you and send it for, send it to you. So, you know, uh, there's that. Uh, that's, there's not that many patrons though, so I, that's not really gonna, you know, eat into anything for me. Um, but what I want to do in the, in the beginning of this is, uh, you know, these first few episodes of the season, really the first four, I should say, are going to be related to book promo because the publisher isn't really going to do a lot because that's how academic publishers are. Like, they'll put it on their website. It's already on their website, and they'll put it out on their listserv. So, you know, but, you know, so the, the book, look, the book is about um, language teaching and how I think that a lot of the oppressive uh, systems that language teaching feeds into can all be tied through through capitalism and and uh, colonialism and um, just racial linguistic ideologies can be, be tied to the fact that they still idealize whiteness as the uh, perfect kind of English, right? Standardized English, uh, Western English, an American or a British, but not even just those countries, but a particular group of people within the countries are prized and. Because of that, everybody who's outside of that paradigm is always going to be seen as deficient. And my point is that until we still are prizing whiteness with the way that we teach the language, we're always going to have these issues. Um, and we should no longer center whiteness um, in language teaching. We shouldn't center it, period, but specifically about language teaching. This, you know, The first part of the book is a sort of history thing, really quick. Uh, the middle section is the criticism of language teaching, and then the third section is based on my research my dissertation talking about, um, you know, what I tried to do, the whiteness classes I taught, um, and whether or not the people succeeded at changing their institutions. Spoiler alert, uh, it's hard to change institutions. <laughs> anyway, uh, so what I'm going to do, these first few episodes are going to be related to themes that are in the book. Hopefully anyone who listens to this will pick it up. Um, I'm not going to make a lot of money off of it, folks. Uh, you know, academic contracts aren't great. Uh, but I want people to read it. I'm more interested in selling the book so that I get so that more people have heard what I had to say than in, in the dollars. Sure, I'd like the money, but I'm only going to make a couple bucks off of each one. Um, I, I just want people to have the conversations, you know? Because what I've come to and what this episode is going to be about, I'm talking to my friend Elizabeth King, uh, the tenured professor. Um, and we're going to talk about sort of trying to effect change, effect with an E, 
which is to say to cause change, um, and how I'm not actually an academic by uh, profession these days. You know, my job is in the nonprofit world, um, and I do education management, that sort of thing, and it's actually really closely related to my degree, but I'm not in academia. I'm still out here giving these talks and, and, and writing these books, though, and I wonder if that will end up being more effective than trying to change an institution, right? Because when you're a tenured professor, you theoretically have the ability to change your own institution. So, you know, we're going to talk a little bit about, you know, what works, what doesn't, and, uh, and so forth. Because I think a lot of people, and a big part of my work, my research, my scholarship, is about trying to push white people who are, who are friendly to what I'm talking about to take extra steps, you know? So, um, yeah. All right. So the thing I'm going to do in this episode, and I appreciate anyone who's been listening for three years I've been doing this now, is I'm going to give you a little bit of an excerpt from the book. It is going to be the, well, should I do the prologue? Yeah, I'll do the prologue. Okay. This is only two pages, so I'm just going to read it, and hopefully you enjoy it. In the next episode, I will read a little bit more of the introduction, and then in the section, in the episode after that, I'm going to read a little bit of the key terms sections, um, because, you know, I had to give people exactly what uh, the book is about. After that, I think that that'll be it. I'm going to do probably four book promo episodes, and then we'll just go on with something else, and I just hope everybody has enjoyed it by that point. Okay, so let's start with the uh, introduction to the book, okay? Antisocial language teaching, English, and the pervasive pathology of whiteness. Okay, so, <clears throat> starts with, says prologue, and says, who? Right. As of this writing, I am an education doctoral candidate, and by the time you read this book, I will have a doctorate of education in instructional leadership, a phrase that could mean just about anything, but this book is part of what I've chosen to do with my degree. More importantly, though, I am a black and neurodivergent man who has spent his entire life immersed in white spaces, and I only recently came to understand the impact this has had on me, which is a story that will be threaded throughout the narrative of this book. For much of my life, I refused to accept the impact of racism upon my life, chalking up my social discomfort to what I perceived as my own deficit, but once I began the inquiry required by my doctoral studies, I couldn't ignore the discomfort of my white peers whenever racism was a topic of discussion. Even my very nice, polite, liberal friends were eager to impact any social issue other than the one in which they might be complicit and a bit of an instigator at heart. I decided to keep on pulling on this thread until it eventually unraveled. What I revealed to myself was the fact that despite my childhood hopes of being accepted as part of the majoritized group, my life was always going to be different even if it appeared superficially similar. This might seem an obvious point, but I had told myself and been told by my schools that I could achieve my way out of the box of racism and furthermore that I should be grateful for the chance to be the black face in these white spaces. The endless paper cuts I endured were more subtle than the horror stories most have heard of and as such it was easy for me to believe that what I experienced was something different and more innocuous. But ultimately though, Though I went to exclusive schools and had privileges that many black students that many black students still don't, my education was, one might say, extraordinary. Extra in the particular clubs I was invited to join, but ordinary in that I was only invited inside in order to be subsequently isolated. 
I spent the first part of my career as an English language teacher in both South Korea and New York City, and as I came to the above realization, my own experiences in the field were thrown into sharp relief. My previously mundane research into community program attendance evolved into a deep fundamental inquiry into the very foundation of the field itself, and I began to develop a body of work that problematized the whole of the English language teaching industry. Accordingly, based on my identity, my experience, and my research, I believe I am the person best positioned to write this book, and I hope you will agree. And it says, what? This is technically an academic book from an academic publisher, complete with APA citations, and indeed this book includes some of the findings from my research in part three. As you will see in parts one and two of the book, however, I have specific reasons why I'm not writing this book as traditional research reportage. You can choose to consider this semi-academic or non-traditionally academic, but though I do hope educators find my work resonant enough to employ as part of their pedagogy, I want this to be a book that can be consumed by the public by anyone who has an interest or a stake in language, education, disability, or whiteness, which truth be told should be everyone if you think about how broad this topics are. More specifically, though, this book is a mix of conceptual arguments based on academic literature and theoretical frameworks and a vision for the future of the ELT field based on my research findings and my own experience, with plenty of studies from my life peppered, plenty of stories from my life peppered throughout the text where appropriate. If you were a doctoral student like I was when I got this book idea, you might be interested to know that methodologically this is a combination of autoethnography with my reflections on my own identity and power woven throughout the text and a bit of narrative inquiry in the interviews I conducted for part three. Where and when? I write this from unceded months of the Nazi and Canarsie territory, which you would know as Queens, New York. I was born and raised in this city, and for most of my life, I had little to no idea of its rich history prior to the arrival of settler colonialism, despite being taught to sew moccasins in second grade with the rest of my class. I mention this not because I am some sort of expert in indigenous history now, but because this book is ultimately about both education and language, as I will detail in part two, the fact that using these names for the places we live is itself erasing the past many of us have profited from, and that is relevant to the arguments I make. I write this from the vantage point of a black person in what we call the United States, which means most of my sources do derive from that nation state, but if you are a reader in a different country, please do understand that this work will be relevant to you as well. As the initial arguments of Part 1 will make clear, set of colonialism, capitalism, and anti-blackness are global issues, all tied inextricably to the whiteness that uses English teaching as an instrument of pathologization. I expect that from a, say, British or Australian perspective, some of my writing may need to be reframed, and that is work I hope minoritized scholars in the context can take up after reading this book. In other words, just because I have an American passport doesn't mean that my argument doesn't apply to other places, and I plan to make that clear. As for the when, I began writing this in early 2021 during a time of visceral and visible global trauma. My public scholarship grew in prominence in the summer of 2020 when, having just published an article on whiteness and language teaching, I got frustrated with white peers peppering me with questions in the wake of the murder of George Floyd and started to start teaching classes on decentering whiteness. Most importantly, though, I wrote this book as my son grew from a baby to a toddler, and I write out of a perhaps misguided hope that addressing these intertwined issues honestly and forcefully might help protect him when he is just eventually just as immersed in whiteness as I've always been. I have a particular style, for better or worse, so there is usually a difference between written and spoken language. I don't think anything written should be difficult for me to read aloud. If I wouldn't say it, then I won't write it. I find that this makes the, makes the words much more enjoyable to read, and although I would hope this book is both convincing and informative, if you don't enjoy the way it's written, then what good is it? To that point, I occasionally employ language some would consider less formal, while I sometimes use very specific academic language if I feel the word choice is appropriate. I write, however, the particular point needs to be made, and despite being in full command of what I refer to as standardized English, I prefer to leave the room for my language to remain unstandardized. And why? 
the system of ELT is broken. Or truthfully, the system's working the way it's designed. It's just not designed for the very benefit of very many people. It's not working for most students. It's not working for most teachers. It's not even working for most administrators. Yet all of these groups often point the finger at one another, and understandably so. It's easier to tackle, tackle personified villainy. But there isn't just one bad person or group of people that is keeping this field stuck in its harmful patterns. I could have chosen to write a book simply laying out the problems with ELT pedagogy, and I might have done an adequate job at this. I think such a book would have necessarily fallen short, however, because the problems with ELT aren't limited to the teaching of the language itself. To unpack this issue, we really need to dismantle the very conceptualization that the food field both takes for granted and constantly reifies. Yes, we need to look at education, at pedagogy, at language, but we also need to go farther. We need to look at history. We need to look at sociology. We need to zoom all the way back out from a narrow look at ELT itself and think deeply about blackness, about disability, about capitalism, etc., colonialism, and the faulty structures upon which our society is built. This book could go so far as to include almost every axis of oppression into its epistemological analysis, but I chose to focus on racialization and ability and connections to language, ideologies, and education because of my own identity as a black and neurodivergent cisette man with professional experience in ELT. Rest assured, there is plenty to be said about queerness, about gender identity and expression, about religion in relation to ELT, and I pass that baton to others who identify accordingly and their ability to build upon my arguments more skillfully than I could hope to. Nevertheless, though the aims of this book are broad in some respects, from another angle they are actually very narrow. Yes, I am tying a lot of ideas together, but every word here serves a singular purpose, namely to take aim at the concept around which ELT is centered. Simply put, this book exists to make the case for why it is a moral imperative that ELT severs its ties to whiteness once and for all, and for the bright future that could follow if we ever manage to demolish the structure inside of which we are all trapped. All right. Enjoy the episode with Dr. King. So anyone listening to this has just heard me read a couple of pages of my book, so that means that they're pretty well invested in this, so you know it's on standardized English. No one's skipping the first six minutes. Why would you do that? Um, although I sometimes do that with podcasts I listen to because they have an opening pattern that I find annoying, but like, let's be clear. Anyone listening to this, if you find me annoying, you're not listening to it. So anyway, I'm here today with Elizabeth King once again for the first time in about a year and a half. Mm-hmm. Uh, hello, Dr. King. How are you doing? Hello. Happy to be back. Yeah, your hair is not exotic enough. I disapprove. Um, <laughs> Kick, me Kick me off the pod. Get somebody else on. It's just not. It's just not. Um, I'm tired yeah. of washing my hair in like ice cold water. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. This this is nothing that I have to deal with. Um, but what I wanted to talk about today, as I said in the intro, which I don't actually remember what I said in the intro, but and I, I didn't I, hear it, so I don't know. <laughs> yeah, but like. Is to talk about effecting change e, with an E, because that's weirdly as a verb, the only way that's supposed to be used is like causing something. I don't understand how affect and effect got to be that way. Um, but the fact that like I no longer work in academia, I don't think I ever really, really did. I wasn't a full time professor or anything. But my last job was technically affiliated with a school. So although I was working in professional development, I was an employee of a school. And, you know, I was adjuncting mostly because I enjoy it. And I was doing that up until the end of the summer. And that doesn't mean I wouldn't do that again. But my primary and I, I the point is, when we talked last time, I was a year from finishing and I didn't know what I was going to be doing. Um, and now I know where I have a new job. And yet I wonder, am I not? 
is following what would have been the traditional path, would that have led me to having more of an impact? Or am I actually going to have more of an impact out here just saying shit without having any responsibility to do anything about it? (laughs) Uh, I feel like that's a conversation also a year from now. Did you do anything? Well, that's the... Because I think about, like, what do I want to do for, like, a second book? And I'm interested in... The only problem is I'd have to wait a while because I would love to write a book that's about how everybody failed at DEI after they said they were going to do stuff in 2020. Mm. But I have to wait for a while to have enough proof. Like, I know they failed, but I have to wait a while to for them to fail more definitively. I think that failure was like a month in. Well, right. (laughs) But technically, all of their plans are technically several years long. Yeah, sure. Strategic plans. Uh, Yeah, I have to wait for them to fail completely. I don't be like, we'll see if they fail. Like, I have to be able to be like, no, they fail. Uh, like, the book has a couple of things like that, but I can only talk about things that were short-term because of when I wrote it. So, you, because uh, I think that there's a very white-centric belief in two poles of theories of change, right? Obviously, the concept of theory of change is a whole thing, but whatever. Uh, there's the policy way, and then there's the moral suasion way, right? Which is mm-hmm. to say, convincing people that certain things are right and wrong, right? I know you know, but people listen to that know. Yeah. And, you know, for a long time, and I say in the book, like, one has to institute new, better policies, and of course the process of doing so is fraught, but also, you do have to change people's minds. The problem is, like, I'm not sure with an adult, at least, that you can just show up to him, someone who's coming at me with, like, you know, racist hate mail. I'm be like, why don't you read this book about decentering whiteness? Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> like, it's not, it's not <laughs> they're not going to read the book. So, you know, uh, on the other hand, if there's someone who has some troubling views, let's just say, and they run up against a policy that they can't get away from, then they may well just follow the policy. But as soon as they get away from where they have to follow the policy, maybe they'll even double down. So I'm, I'm just sort of conflicted about sort of the, uh, the belief in the two poles of, of, of effect, of, 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 um, theories of change. But on the other hand, what does that mean? What, what's left in between the two? Right? Mm-hmm. I think what's left is something vague and amorphous like influence and inspiration, but that really can't be codified. Which is the hard thing. Do you think it's, you said in the middle of those two, do you think it's somewhere in the middle of that spectrum? Because that also sounds kind of diluted, but maybe hit it real hard on both ends of the spectrum. Not, not necessarily actually that's on spectrum, the two poles. Yeah. Well, because like one of the things that I was working on last year, I did a presentation at a conference with a bunch of people. Um, and that was within a professional organization. Professional organizations, I have come to realize, they there is a role for them because, frankly, there's people I simply wouldn't have met without them, right? Mm-hmm. But if we expect only that they are places for people to meet each other and theoretically share information and stop, because this has happened a lot in the last two years, people think that professional organizations are going to be vehicles of justice. I'm like, but they're not built that way. Like, that's not what they're for. That would be nice, but there's so many regulations for these professional organizations that they can't get out of their own way a lot of the time. 
So like I met these people in this professional organization and we set up a smaller subcommittee on like anti-racism and stuff. And first of all, it's hard to get people to do stuff, but that has nothing to do with personal organization. It's just people. You know, I'm just like, why don't we do these things? And they're like, okay, and then they don't do it. I'm like, it's all exciting right there in the conversation. Yeah. yeah follow yeah, up and yeah. no accountability. Yeah. And they're like, oh, I'm busy. I'm like, I get it. But then why did you say you could do it? Which I get, like, I've done that too. But like, anyway. Uh, but again, that's not a project. That's not a professional organization problem. That's just a people problem. Yeah. But I met them and we did this presentation. And one of the things that we tried to do as a follow-up was like, I tried to contact, we found some policies that we thought were outdated in the state for language teaching. So we said, why don't we figure out how those might change? So we, I emailed a bunch of people at the state or where we thought someone might work who would at least be able to tell us how those things are changed. And nobody ever responded to us. So, you know, we tried a few times and then and just nobody responded. Um, and we thought with the imprimatur of the organization, they might listen. Because I was sending it from my, like, VP of advocacy email at an organization. And they didn't respond. So, you know, like, maybe I could call them. But, like, nobody wants to answer a cold call. And I realized that, like, you know, these policies, they're not going to listen to external pressure. You know, unless they do some scandalous thing. And then they have yeah. to correct it. They're not going to listen. And I know this from the, my last job where I was working not for but with the city government. They The policy changes they make are within their own heads. They just don't make any sense and they help nobody. Uh, like they changed – they're all cosmetic too. They changed the name of the organization from the Office of Child Support Enforcement to the Office of Child Support Services. Oh, that'll solve it. Yeah. Did they update the website too? Oh, they changed. Yeah, they changed the website. Uh, and I'm like, but you're what about so- a mission statement? Oh, <laughs> they, now there's thir- they, they said that there were 13 keywords. I'm like, that's too many keywords. That's not key. Uh, <laughs> that's not key. That's just words. Uh, that's a sentence. Uh, and they were always at the, like the email signatures then had to have all of those at the bottom. So then every email signature had all, oh, no. all these words at the bottom. <laughs> every time we email each other, all these words jump. It's like it's a one sentence email, but it's like 13 words at the bottom. It's just like ridiculous. Um, and I'm, but my thought was just like, you're still doing enforcement though. Mm-hmm. So you can take enforcement out of the name, but you're still doing enforcement. And let's be honest here. The reason that you are one of the city agencies that ne- didn't have any issues during the pandemic. I mean, they had logistical issues, but they didn't have any funding issues is because they do so much enforcement. Like their job is to take money from people. And I don't mean that necessarily in a bad way. If you are not paying your child support, you should pay it. Uh, but like they are bringing in money. So they were never going to have an issue. So let's stop pretending that enforcement isn't the main thing that you do. Right. right? And I feel that way about a lot of the acronyms. So I feel that, but acronyms are policies in their way. You know, like t- official naming and stuff like that. Like those are policies. And they're supposed to have an impact. Otherwise, why would you change them? Right. The, and, you know, I feel like there's a, a gradient of how often those are helpful. And, you know, because it could just change a name only. I mean, we talk about how we're like over and redefining terms throughout academia and such. And that doesn't really necessarily help unless it helps. So that it, like there's still got to be it's got to be baked within the system and within itself, within both the policies all the way down, not just the name. But also within the people. I mean, because like as an example, when I wrote about this in the book, it's like 
is it not good to change it from ESL to like ELT or ELL or whatever? Sure, because the old acronym is factually incorrect. So sure, it's just that you have to understand that that is a small part of a larger problem. Like what does the acronym's inaccuracy represent? It's not just inaccuracy, it's treating people as less, right? So if you have a new acronym, but you still treat people the same way, I'm not going to say the acronym doesn't matter, but I am going to say it doesn't mean that much. It's the same way that when people learn that they shouldn't be calling everything like crazy or whatever because it can be seen as ableist, and then they just re- return it to another word. And I'm like, that's fine. Are you still talking about people that you think don't make sense? Right. Because like, the problem is that that what the impetus was to change the acronym, to change the word, to change your, your center's um, – you know, titles, something like that, like whatever that impetus was. Well, actually, typically it's like a lot of public pressure or, you know, trying to look like you're doing the right thing and the optics of the messaging. But let's say it's done, you know, in with like the right head in mind, like um, you have to take that problem all the way through, <laughs> all the way through like a professional development organization, all the way through any academic or instructional system that if you have an issue with the, that othering in that language, you have to make sure Okay, and sorry, academia is where I am. So it's like, hey, are your grading policies othering? Like we can say all day that our mission statement includes cultural competence, which I hate that term. <laughs> Back to changing terms and the lack of importance of it. Um, but it's gotta, it's gotta follow all the way down and not just in the policies, but in the actions. Otherwise it's totally meaningless. Well, right. I mean, like, cause I think sometimes people use these two poles both the policy change and, you know, preaching to people who want to be converted as action in themselves. And it's like, they are part of it. They're just not the whole thing. And you, you, you can tell, and I said this to my coworkers and I learned this pretty quickly is that places I've worked that are really, really proud of their like diversity work and will tell you so much about their diversity work. And refer to it as such i don't just mean i don't mean like an actually committed organization that's actually helping people of color or disabled people or whatever and it's just showing the work that they do i'm talking about like a white-led institution that talks about how they're really good for people who aren't white except everyone who's in the leadership is white and i'm just like what i feel like the more you talk about it without living it then the less you're actually doing. Whereas the places that are actually living it, and I feel like my current job is better at that, they're not really beating their chest about how good they are at it. Mm -hmm. Like when I brought it up in my first couple of weeks and I said, you know, it was pretty clear to me immediately how much of a difference there was. They were like, well, it's a work in progress. Like the people who, it's the same way I feel about any strong scholar is that the strong scholar, although they may have their niche and expertise in a very specific thing, they know how much they don't know. Yeah, that's the point. Right. You're just like, I, I know I wrote a couple hundred pages about this thing. I can talk about that thing. Uh, but like when they think like that means I'm an expert in everything, I'm like, that's not really how it works. Mm -hmm. And you know, well, we hired a new token person. We should be very proud of ourselves as an organization. And I'm just like, yeah, let's check back in 10 years and see how happy that person is if they're still there. And if they're still there. <laughs> yeah, well, if they're that's, even still that's there. That's going to be a no. Uh, right. Most likely. Yeah, it uh, is. It, that's, yeah, when optics are the thing that are moving things forward. And 
I understand the value of optics, right? These things do matter. It's just they're not the only thing that matters. Like, I don't want to say we should ignore optics because, like, I think people can be myopic about it where they're just like, no, nothing about optics matters and we shouldn't care about the way it looks to the broader public. It's like, no, if you're an institution and you're facing the public in some way, you do have to care about this sort of thing. Right. It's just in line with the reality. Right. It can't be the only thing. You know, right. it can't it can't be like the optics are the goal a lot of the time, which is what marketing departments are for. But if you're talking if you're doing anything other than like marketing, then the optics cannot be the only consideration. And I think that that's one of the things I struggle with is like. I uh as I've gotten to know the work that I'm doing now, which is my work is still education, but the organization does like community development financial lending and that sort of thing. And they're specifically helping people who maybe couldn't qualify at this place. And, but they're not doing it in this, like trying to bankrupt people way that like credit card companies do. Right. You know, uh, yes, it's a participation in capitalism, but like where, okay, go live in your That's hole. Not, yeah. yeah. Go live in your hole then. All <laughs> right. You know, like, um, because people, especially when, especially if I talk to academics who are just like anti-capitalist academics, like I am too, in that sense, but, I'm just like, you You know that you work for a school that's part of capitalism, right? Like, what, what institution do you think you work for? Exactly. Like, what do you think the bottom line <laughs> is that our president's actually looking at? Do you right. Know? Yeah, you're, you're still cog in a system, too. Right. And I think, like, absolve ourselves because we think we're doing this high thought. <laughs> well, that's one of the things that it's like a tricky thing because it's not just, like, are you part of this? Are you not part of this? We're all part of it. It's like, it's also to, I think one of the main problems of academia in general, but, you know, particular jobs, particularly the professor it, professor it, uh, is that what you're saying, this belief that there's this higher calling to the work. Yep. On the other hand, it's like, as I've gotten, and I don't want to say cynical, I don't think it's cynical, I think I'm just being realistic, that, like, there is genuinely value to putting out ideas in accessible fashion that people can use to turn over things in their heads. Like, that is valuable. I saw... Well, unaccessible I, is the term there. Well, How many? well I was going to get okay. to All right, that. There you go. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, um, and I saw my student from Korea for the first time since Korea, like two days ago. She's in New York. She's she's a she's a TESOL doctoral student uh-huh. at Indiana University, which is if you're talking about moving from Korea to a different place. Um, but <laughs> so she but she just came to New York for a couple of days. Um, and she said she wouldn't be an English like academic student if it hadn't been for my teaching when I didn't know what I was doing. You know, this is like, this is not me after the masters, it's not me now. This is me when I was like 22 and I didn't know what I was doing, but there was a certain thing that I figured out about being in front of a class that I knew how to do or that I knew how to connect with them. And it seems like I connected with some of them. So my point is there is a value. I mean, if you do it well in just being a teacher, right? Like there are people there who are going to learn from you and remember it forever. And there is value in accessible knowledge generation. The problem with both of these things is the accessible part because you're not teaching everyone. 
And, which is not necessarily the school's fault. I mean, like, you're not going to teach a 9,000 person class, but like, uh, you're also, what does accessible mean, right? In order to actually move forward in your career, and this, you can talk about your policy thing with the tenure requirements in a second, because that's, uh, part of this. You literally ha- are incentivized to publish in the most inaccessible way possible. Like, it is a disincentive to be accessible. Yes, everything you just said about actually put meaningful change into folks' lives and accessible thoughts and discussion, not, none of that is rewarded. So if you want to keep your job, you have to, you have to play the game, right? You have to do the inaccessible stuff. And, and I think a lot of like pre-tenure folks might think, well, when I get tenure, you know, that's when I'm going to, that's when I'm really going to do it right. And that's when I'm really, but then full comes along and it's, we're still in this system where like, None of that is, you don't have, none of that is celebrated and none of that is, um, counts for lack of a better word towards our progression in our careers, which I think a lot of academic folks, I'm going to say they are their careers. (laughs) Been going to a lot of therapy trying to separate my own identity from, from this job, but you know, that's like steeped within people to, to just like listen to this and acquiesce to what the system values. I mean, that's a big part of what I've been dealing with the last few months since I told you I was going to tell you how I am, is that I have this weird, I have separated myself from my work in a way. Like, I believe in my work more than I ever have, but I also know because now what I'm doing academically is not directly tied to it. It does help my work. Like, it, like they value my, I don't know what to call it, expertise or whatever, but like the work that I've done, not that they've read all of it. I don't know about this book. I don't want to be like, hey, why don't you read this thing? Um, but, uh, they value it and I have sort of successfully, even though I wasn't planning on it, sort of distanced myself from my identity being tied in exactly the work that I do, which would not have happened had I gotten an academic job. So that's good, but it also meant like, now I don't know what to do with my identity (laughs) because I'm just like, yeah, no, really, that's like a big thing that's been going on this summer. I'm just like, well, now what? I finished school. I don't, I can, even when I had the last job and I was not super invested in that, and I don't mean that I didn't care, it just wasn't my identity, but I would, but I did have school to do, so that was my identity. So now, it's not work, it's not school, because there is no school. Uh, and, and I'm trying to convince myself of, like, there are people out there who read the work that I put out there, or listen to the talks that I do, at, or this show, and, you know, in my dissertation itself, I actually wrote of the influence that I've had from literally just, I read an article or a book or see a talk. And then I was just like, well, why don't I just see what that person thinks? And I would like contact them and I would talk to them. And frankly, I got more out of talking to people than I did from the actual work a lot of the time. Obviously in writing something, you got to bring the work in. But I mean, like I wrote in my dissertation how Cheryl Matias is a, pretty distinguished professor although i don't want to say distinguished because that's like actually a title at some places so whatever but whatever she's a full professor at yeah (laughs) she's a full professor in kentucky and uh the last aera i went to in toronto in 2019 she was there and it was one of those horrible academic situations where they were like hey six of you wrote different books why don't you talk about it for 30 seconds um like talk about your whole book in 30 seconds (laughs) or you fail right Mm -hmm. and 
So she gets, so like, you know, and the books have nothing to do, they vaguely relate to race, but like, they don't, they're not really related to each other, right? So, uh, but the presentation was bad, and it wasn't their fault, it's because it's a bad format, because academia doesn't actually care about presenting useful ideas. But, she goes up there, she talks about her book, which was about, like, white emotionality and stuff like that, and, uh, some white lady in the crowd gets up, and I don't remember exactly the word she said, but basically she was like, what do I do? You know. Oh, yes. Yeah, and, and you can uh, answer that as quickly as you can talk about your entire book in 30 seconds. <laughs> right. But Dr. Matias said, and I fully acknowledge the fact that at that point she was a tenured professor. She was she was an associate professor at the time and is full professor now. Um, she said basically like, go read the book. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah, and I'm just like, oh, I did not know that you could do that. That you could just not answer their silly question. You know, it's an impossible ask, but go read a book is like the fantastic first step yeah. because it's all like a drop in a bucket anyway for like that white woman who wants, you know, the like a checklist of what to do. No, you've got to really start from the foundational point. That's where I started. I wanted the checklist of like figuring out that all of this exists and realizing, oh, I got to make a change. What do I do now? Because it comes from a good enough place, but a totally like ignorant place of thinking that you can even do anything in the moment you know like I feel like a lot of I don't know especially white women will say like oh well now I'm going to change xyz because I learned this one single thing and that's not the the move either I mean it's one book is the first step and then you've just got to keep on keeping on and I think that it depends on the book oh yeah I mean yours obviously well yeah yeah but what I mean is and this isn't even about the quality of my book. It's that my book and books like it, or I should say books that my book is like, since it's more recent. Mm-hmm. Um, there are, there are books that will try to give you a checklist at the end. And then there's books that don't, right? Where you have to like figure it out. And the people who finish a book and they're like, what do I do? You know, um, are still going to be searching for that because they want that checklist. Yeah. I remember last, was it last year? Yeah, it was last year. I was working on an article with somebody and we had submitted it to a journal. No, it was solicited from me. And then I asked my friend if she wanted to work with me on it. And uh, we wrote it. And then it's, it's supposed to be about anti-racism in, in the field. That's you don't ask me if you don't want an article about that, right? Yeah, um, that's just kind of my corner of the world. And then the the, the comment, the, some of the comments were stylistic, which tends to bother me, but like, I don't really care that much. If it's going to be in a little journal, fine. But then there were things like, you didn't give up, she didn't say this, but she basically said like, you didn't tell people what to do at the end. And I'm like, but yeah, literally, literally we told you in, in the like, abstract before we even wrote the article that we were not going to tell people what to do. <laughs> and yeah. you said it was fine. It wasn't her. So there were two different editors. So like the person I sent it to knew me and she was like, great. And then like the editor who's a different person was like, there's no list of things to do. And unfortunately, it's a black lady and it bothered me because that means she's a person who had gotten to a certain point in her academic career where she had followed the system and it worked for her. Right. And she was basically saying, follow this. It'll work. She didn't say it'll work for you. But, but this is what we have to do. This is what we have to do. 
right? And it's it's hard sometimes in minoritized groups, and this can go for gender, but it's also race um, and anything like that, is that you wish you could count on solidarity from everybody in your group. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. and it's hard to know until you talk to people about this, which is why when some people say they don't trust all white people, I'm just like, I get it. But on the other hand, do you trust all black people? Um, <laughs> cause, cause, you know, and, and, and so That's it's not, mean. yeah, exactly. So I, cause I've had bosses who were black. I have one who's black now and I don't have these issues, but I had a boss, I've had bosses who were black who were very clearly the like, similar to my mom, not personality wise, but who had clearly always been the only in their professional levels. Obviously, if they were my boss, we weren't, she wasn't the only one at the job because I worked there. But I mean, like, at her level, she had always been like, here's what I had to do to get here. And she's probably something that had been internalized. Um, and especially being women, like, there's, there's a whole bunch of extra pressure there. And I understand that. I can't go through it, but I understand it. Um, but it, there was this undercurrent of like, don't fuck my shit up. Yeah. I would point out like, hey, this is kind of fucked up. And they'd be like, they wouldn't say shut up. They would basically say, but this is the way it's done. Right. You but know. This is what I had to do. Right. And I'm trying to, I don't even know. I'm, I'm anxious about things that don't matter in the sense that, which is what anxiety is. Um, <laughs> if it matters, then you're not really being anxious. You can be anxious about, well, well I mean, just mean like, whole other clinic, clinically I mean. anxious. I just mean, you know, in the yeah. sense that like, if I am on a plane that's crashing and I'm scared, don't think that's anxiety. No, that's, yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, I worry about me 20 years from now. Like, what if this book takes off or the next one does or whatever, right? How how can I prevent myself from becoming a person who's not trying to pull the ladder up behind them? You know? Yeah. How I do I, I, I know right that. now how I wouldn't do it, but how do I know I won't do it when I'm 50? Right. When you get comfortable. Right. When you, when the policies start working for you because you're adhering to the policies and it's like a feedback loop. I don't know. I mean, I think you just, yeah, you have to check it all the time because otherwise you're going to get lazy about it. And that is what the whole, it's, I'm, I'm really keying on this is that it's in the dissertation and it's in, I don't know if it's, I can't remember if it's in the book or not, but it's in a lot of what I've been thinking about and it's kind of, dispiriting is the wrong word. But it's exhausting to think about is that like, yeah, it's just never going to end, mm-hmm. which is both good and bad. It's bad because it's just never going to end, but it's good because, you know, there's always something worthwhile to do for someone like me and like you who like, like to do stuff. You know, there's always something to be done. I have liked to do things. Yeah. <laughs> it's never going to be over. You know, like we solved it. Yeah. Which she, right. It's frustrating, but also good because we should never look at it as a, as a goal of we did it, I'm done now. I'm gonna rest. Right, and 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 I think that sometimes people, it's hard to explain the nuances of like it is important to celebrate small wins and celebrate them in a way that allows you to understand that this matters and you have more work to do, because I think there is a people only feel comfortable celebrating at a final point sometimes. Right, and a like a grand point, you know, right. when it, when a student emails me and it's like. I've never thought about whiteness in my whole life, and now my whole world has changed, you know, paraphrasing. And, but 
you know, those feel grand to me. That feels like, okay, there's that, there's that one moment, but you know, what are they going to do after that? And then I get in my own, own head too. Like, great. I'm glad you took this one class. Are you going to be that woman who goes forward in life and says, I took one class and we talked about this thing rather than like continuing forward on the journey too. And there's, there's really no moment where you see the work that you're doing come to fruition because it shouldn't. I mean, to me, I don't know what to do about the fact that there clearly is a point at which it does depend on a person's curiosity level. Yes. Like to be curious about something different from yourself or aspects of your own self, depending on what particular topic we're talking about. And like, if you're someone who's just like, whether because there's legitimate reasons not to be curious, like I'm tired, I'm too busy, whatever. Right. But I, and then on top, and then the people who have less bandwidth, whether they're sick or something like that, like I get it. But, uh, if people are curious, there's so many things available. And if they're incurious, literally nothing is going to work. I think, the, I think, I think if we pitch the policies as being for the incurious people, yeah. you know, like, people, well, there's research on that, especially like gay marriage, like policies can change hearts and minds too. It can go in that direction. Well, I know that my aunts and uncles and so forth were like not very progressive on that issue. Literally, and this, you know, this stuff was planned is that I believe it was 2013 when Obama said he was in favor of it. They suddenly were like, yeah, you know, I don't, I guess it doesn't really matter that much to me, you know, and I'm just like, motherfucker. There it is. Okay, that's the top down moment. I love that policy is for the incurious. It's like, hey, this is what we're doing now. Right. And I think there's a lot of people who, even if they're not like angry and hateful about it, it's like, okay, you know, whereas you saw like, to me, I noticed that last fall when I was going into work a couple of days a week, which is the same as it is now, but it was a different job. And I would go to this food court, right? And I could see it on the people's literal faces every time the mask mandate it, rules changed. When there was no mandate, no mask. When there was mandate, mask. I'm just like, right. <laughs> it's the same, we're in the same swimming pool right now. Like that right. We were last week, I don't. Yeah. It was like, oh, oh, yesterday you were like. But 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 what's interesting is that there really are just a, a critical mass of people who genuinely probably don't care, and they're like, well, I guess that's the rule. Yeah, so that's that's yeah. who the policies are for, and it's like, so I do understand why the policies matter. I think that when you really have a conversation, you're not probably having a conversation with incurious people because they don't really want to have a conversation, right. right? And so for them, you just like make a rule and just whatever. And then for the people who are, because curious does not mean like curious in a good way. You'd be curious about bad things. Right. What so, about a curiosity of you know like white dudes who raise their hand and they're like, I'm just I'm not even gonna say. Like I'm just gonna and they ask some really like jarring question tied to a problematic narrative. Like I was at an a, a like a pro abortion rally and some dude came up to me and was asking like, Well do you think in all cases you know, that dude. Uh-huh. Like is that curiosity or is that like I guess it depends on the person, but like engaging with those folks is also an interesting moment of like under the guise of curiosity, folks just want to stir the pot and somehow prove to you that you are wrong. Like I don't have that from students typically, mostly just dudes out in the world. <laughs> like, but you know, when students push back, it's like, I don't believe this. I don't believe in racism, which is a hilarious phrase that I could, we could 
unpack for a year, not like a book. Okay. Um, but you know, that pushback, there's like, I guess pushback and curiosity is like tied together, but not necessarily the same thing. Yeah. It's, um, I don't know how to describe that because I do think that you can be curious about like curiosity is how you fall down an algorithm rabbit hole on like TikTok, right? That's curiosity, <laughs> right? When you think about it, you know? Um, so, cause I think it, there, there's a critical mass of people who just really don't care one way or the other and will go along with what the changes are. And then there's people who are curious and are curious about exploring like the black pill or whatever it is. And there's people who are curious and are trying to do things in what ways that we would say are much better. And I, you know, I feel for the people who, because like, what was I thinking recently about, um, one thing I've learned from the research I've done is similar, using different words in the dissertation, but I think that most people are just, like I said, following the stories they've been told. We all are to some extent, right? Yeah. And I think that the, the people for better or worse, who say, you know what? I'm not so sure about that story. Um, and try to find out a new story. Mm-hmm. There are people who are with us and people who are vehemently opposed to it because like their version of what the story is is different, right? You know? Right. Um, but it also leaves us with like, okay. If someone is truly, and I mean truly beyond the surface, questioning the narrative they've been told, and and we are able to come in contact with them, there's no telling what more that they can do. Like I, I think back to moments left where I, if I turn left or turn right, where things would be, or if something had worked out or it didn't work out, where things would be. Right? Sometimes it's as literal as turning left or turning right. Like I don't think I would have ended up with my wife if I had turned right the day that we met because I ran into her. Um, so yeah, like we were in the same class, but like, that was the only time that she was by herself. Cause I got uh, there, I got there. She was already there. Right. The if right had, turn and the by herself, like, right. Off. Well, if I had, if I had turned left, I wouldn't have literally run into her. Um, and you know, she's quiet. So I don't know that I wouldn't necessarily approach her, but because I had already met her anyway. Um, and then I think about that with, with like schools and stuff like, well, if I hadn't done this, I wouldn't be in this school or like, I think like you can get really deep into this stuff of the, of the, of the sliding doors bullshit. And that's but, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Because I'm just like, you know, now I'm just like, I feel much more fulfilled in the work that I'm doing. I don't just mean my current job. I just mean having gone through school and really understanding things about the world. It also makes things harder because like I can't read any fucking nonfiction books now because what am I going to, I'm going to read about something that doesn't have a, a like qualified racial lens. Right. You no, know, if I just read a nonfiction book by someone who doesn't know anything about racism, she's gonna be racist. It's just yeah, no matter what. Yeah, it's <laughs> gonna be in there. Like, <laughs> right. Yeah. You, know, you can't you can't get away from that. Right. They're either gonna uphold colonialism or study colonialism yeah. or just reg- that's gonna they're be prob- something that, like, probably gonna be not that. they're gonna uphold actual like white supremacy in their book, because I'm not gonna read that. But like even if it's just a neutral book that's just about a different topic, you know, like I can't even read about purely like gender issues if I haven't read up on the person to see that they really have something to say about other intersectional things and I mean the same thing if I talk about race and other intersectionalities too but I'm just saying like I can't I'm not going to spend my money on that 
No, white feminism? No. Yeah, yeah, well, there's that book called White Feminism, which is really good, which is about that. Well, yeah, 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 okay. <laughs> yeah. I call, when, when, when feminism doesn't, um, doesn't come from an intersectional perf- um, perspective, I always call it like Taylor Swift feminism. Yeah. Because she had such a moment there in time when she was like, a feminist, but it was like, oh, you're almost, you know, there's a, there's yeah. a lot you're missing it's here. It's because the guy grabbed her ass, and that's bad. And then she didn't yeah, care about Right, so we're all like, else. hooray, but also, hey, there's, there's more <laughs> for the discussion, but. Right. Um, and, <laughs> yeah, that's a good way to describe it. Yeah, so, so then that means like, well, I go to a bookstore, I'm just like, what am I gonna read? Because there's that binary between like, if it's an academic book, it's most likely gonna be just ass. Because. Yeah. It's inaccessible, right? It's accessible in that it's in the bookstore, because I'm not necessarily buying these academic books for $9 million. So if it's in the actual bookstore, it's going to be a price I can, like, that makes sense. Like sure. in the actual regular bookstore. Right, like a so that's good. Price. Which no is price. like my book, I told them to make the price a human price. So that's good. Uh, but if it's an academic book and it's well written and they have like a racial lens on it, it's rare and I applaud them and there's like two of those a year. If it's, an academic book and then anything else, I'm just like, this is, I can't read this. Or if it's a mass market book about something racial, then they have to assume that people don't know anything, which I understand because most people don't know anything. So yeah. they have to spend the first hundred pages talking about stuff I know. And I'm just like, well, I don't. You I don't, don't need that. You need, need a, a, an upper level version right. of that. But that's, but that's, but that's not mass market. The mass but that's you. Who <laughs> is that? Who is that for? Me? Yeah. That's why I write my own books, right? You know, right. so. Right. Like write the book that you want to read. <laughs> right. Yeah, well, just for the job you want, right? Um, <laughs> but it's so true. Like, I, I, I wrote the book. I wrote, the book is very specifically about the work that I've done and, and, like, my own life and all that because, like, literally nobody else could write that book. Like, I feel like there are a lot of people who write books that anyone else could write. Definitely. And you're I think that heart, you're just as you. Yeah. So, you know, so back to the main topic, though, in terms of, like, I think the policy, again, policies that you think are important, even if you read, and people have quibbles with the book, but I do think the general point that Candy makes about the fact that you you can't just morally sway as you, the policies are important, I do think that that is important. Um, like, you can't just ignore policy, but, you know, it comes, I think that policy works better as, like, a stick, you know, mm-hmm. like, what yeah. you can't do. Right. Same with the mask mandate, because the mask mandate wasn't just wear them. It's like, what happens if you don't? Right. That's where I keep running into in big, like big systemic things and even down to policies in my own department. Like, well, okay, well, what's going to where's the accountability? What's going to happen if you don't? And in academia, there's like basically two points in your whole career that you have accountability. Like once you're an assistant professor, do you get associate or do you get full? And. I don't think it's a secret that there's really none, there's not much accountability outside of those two moments. And so then that 10-year promotion document becomes like the thing, the thing you can put all of the accountability and consequences into, but you can't, you know, you you can't. And same with even like policies for our students. If, if we, we have a full, a full competency that it's like, you know, you've got to embrace diversity, inclusion and anti-oppressive practices and all of this stuff that I have students sign that they say, okay, I do want to reflect on my identities and my privilege and challenge institutional biases. I'm down. And then if push comes to shove and they don't, hey, I hope they don't, I don't, you know, what then? Like, that's a conversation. 
we have a conversation. That's a part of the process where you're then going to have to talk to me. And I think usually for things that don't have an accountability kind of built in, sometimes folks select themselves out, um, especially on the student side. Not, I guess as faculty, if you didn't want to um, make your teaching anti-oppressive, you could just leave the university, but that would be, ugh. <laughs> that sounds tough. In this well, market, you know, but, I've said to people that um, sometimes the most anti-racist statement, is, most anti-racist action is retirement. So, you know, for some people that you just, just go. Just need to yeah. Go. Oh, I you know, know. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, and I'm just like, because if they're at if they're at the age where they could retire, then you're probably not going to be able to make them leave anyway. So, um, yeah, I think that there's it's a struggle, right? But like I've said, the fact that it's a struggle isn't a problem. The fact that only some of us are bothering to struggle is the problem. If everybody was struggling messily towards something, then I think a lot would happen. But what happens is you've got people who are opposed to it, people who just do the policy stuff, and people who um, you know, or try, right? And what I think if we reframe policies as a stick for the incurious, like the people who truly either don't care or just like would rather be non-confrontational about it. Yeah. Then, then, uh, we, because I think there are people who think that policies are justice in themselves. But that's not, they're a part of it. And I, I understand why a lot of people are pointing out that the policies are necessary. But like, but they're not like lived experiences. They're not real. I mean, they're the intangible reality, but like, what does it do? <laughs> what does it mean? Well, cause, well, first of all, every policy is made up. I mean, so are laws, but like every, everything, everything's, everything's made up, everything's <laughs> made up right? But I'm saying that's important to understand because like, some people think that these things aren't made up. That they're yeah. just like, chiseled into stone oh right that whole thing <laughs> yeah it, it's just like no 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 moses chiseled this into no i guess it was it was, it, was it god that did the chiseling or was it i don't remember um but he he had stones i forget who there actually was, somebody had stones and there was chiseling of me all the time that i forget everything i learned i was catholic for a quick second in my youth um well, my, wife, all. My, wife, my wife is Catholic and she works for Catholics now, which is funny. Um, well, she works for Catholic charities, you know, nonprofit. Um, and like all she's doing is helping to like resettle refugees in New York. It's a lot of work right now. Um, yeah. because Texas is like sending them here to like make a point. Like that's like oh. a thing that's happening. Like Texas is sending things to New York to like make a point. Uh, yeah. Um, and we do take them though. Like we do. Yeah. So, you know, um, but anyway, the point is, it's all made up, and that's both bad and good. It's bad because, like, it doesn't matter, but it's also good in that, like, well, we just change it. And, in fact, right. one of the reasons I have problems with professional organizations is because they were like, well, the bylaws say, I'm like, literally, who cares? Who wrote that? Like, well, there's new people around this table right now, and that's the point. Like, if you're not willing to change the bylaws, 
Right. Why even reintroduce new folks into this group? Why even pretend that you want to? It's just gonna. Anything? If you want it to just be run by the bylaws, then we don't need to be on this board. Then you don't need like new presidents of the group. You don't need a new committee. Like you're not going to change anything. Right, because then you have to get this many percent of people to change the bylaws and so on and so forth. Like, I mean, it is annoying. Changing a course description takes a year and a half. Here, yeah, so. no, that's what I. This is one of the. So like I said, I think a more realistic second book for me. It's going to be my experiences on, like, DEI committees and then, like, broader research on it. And I can still use the dissertation stuff in there, right? Because yeah. a, lot of, a lot of people who I interviewed mentioned that sort of thing. Um, because, like, <laughs> yeah, so because, like, at my last job, no, actually, when I was in school, I joined a DEI committee. I was like, all right, here we go. And we broke into, it was like a lot of people, everybody wanted to join, right? Because everyone's still at home in 2020, right? Everyone just, what do we want to do with ourselves? Right? So, yeah, I'll join. We'll do diversity stuff. Now, I don't know about you, but uh I think you may be aware that professors like to talk. <laughs> so every time I got on a Zoom call, they just start bloviating about their experience. And I'm just like, and I'm not talking about black people talking about racism. We're just talking about white people just talking. Right? I don't know. And, and I'm just like, okay. And then we broke into the working group here. And a sub-working group here. And this happens at my job, too, but it's the same people. So, like, There'll be four different work groups, but like all the groups will share people, so it's not as bad as like you don't have this. To, like, walk wasn't as nearly as siloed because like yeah. if I go from group A to B to C, I can just tell people what happened in group A, so it's not that big of a deal, right? Yeah. But these are separate groups, siloed. Um, and I said, well, I'm a grad student, so I'll work on the grad student part. So I did, and then you know what ended up happening after like a year and a half is that we we added a paragraph to the standard syllabus. Which, wow. basi- which basically said, like, and it's a good paragraph. I don't know if the paragraph was uh, edited, but basically it said, like, if something is happening, please do contact us, which is a little bit stronger than, like, there is a diversity office in the world somewhere. Oh, right. Is there, like, a link? Right, because like a- all, all the syllabi would say, like, we have a diversity office and we have right. these values. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. I felt real good about myself, you know, when we all started changing our syllabi. No, I, like, no I've been doing that, but um, putting in, you know, a link, a direct link. And then, like, here's their number. Here's the exact thing you need to call. If it's me, call them, too. Like, do it. <laughs> right. I and I think, I think that. But, like, what does that even. Right. I don't know if it's if it helps at all. Maybe it helped one student, and if it helped one student, sure, fine. Yeah. Uh, because a big part of the problem is that they know that these things exist, so they don't know where to go, and they don't know if they can trust the place. I can't help them with the trust part, but I can help them with, like, just give them the options, you know? Um, and, and then the same thing, like, at my job, that's on the freaking DEI committee, and... It, we were working on things like, you know, job ads. What are we putting in the job ads, right? This is not a not, this is not a not useful thing to do, right? You know, where are we advertising? What does it say in the job? What are the requirements for the job, right? You know, can we change this and this? Certain things we could change, and we couldn't change, but we changed what we could change. And like, it was, it was a better job ad or standard. Obviously, the, the description yeah. would change from job to job, but I mean, like the standard stuff that's in every ad. It was better, you know, it was better. That's big. You know, but then I said, so how are we going to measure that this matters? Like, we should do it anyway. Yeah. But is there a goal here? 
if we just want to change Java, that's fine. I'm not saying that's enough, but like that is a thing. But mm-hmm. like one presumes that we would therefore hopefully hire more people of color or depend- we were talking about race, but it could be other things. Um, this was typically about race. So one presumes we will hire a larger percentage of our hires with people of color. And then down the line, we will have a larger percentage. So I said, so how many people of color work here now? And they're like, well, we just, uh, we can't, um, we don't like to actually ask people about how they identify. And I'm just like, so how are we going to find out? Right. <laughs> and this, this went on for like four months. <laughs> Finally, at the end of four months. Like in a color evasive kind of way or like a. Well, so, no, whenever so we talk, racist that you go full circle. <laughs> whenever, no, no, you know, the people on the committee who actually wanted to do it, it was when we talked to the higher ups, they like to just, you know, barf nonsense. So okay. oh, it, oh, that makes more sense. Okay. Yeah. The people on the, the, because the people on the committee seemed like they actually had the nomenclature and the, the language to say the stuff. That doesn't mean they could never do anything wrong, but I mean, like, all I know is I was able to say what I want to say and they didn't push back on me in the committee. And I like that committee, but you know, whenever, I tried to send it up the ladder. They were like, well, ah. and I'm just like, the only people offended by this are white people. <laughs> like, 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 I'm just saying, like, you're not going to offend the black people by asking if they're black. Do you think they know? <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and my, and my problem with all of this is that so much of it is stopped by worrying about offending people in power. But let's be clear, losing power is what offends them, or the potentiality of losing power is what offends them. So even if you don't say it in words that offend them, they're not like, I don't know why people think that people who hold racist views or hold racist power or whatever are just unable to understand things. Right? Oh. Well, we'll, ju- we'll just change the language and they won't be offended. They're already offended. They wake up offended. Yeah, they're they're looking to be more and more. They're just they're, they're just, just potentially easy. aggrieved, sure. just yeah. perpetually aggrieved at all mm-hmm. times. Yeah. They're in Starbucks aggrieved. They're mm-hmm. on they're driving their car aggrieved. Yeah, they're, someone's you know, in front of them. Uh, oh, yeah, just, I know. Trust me, when I see the little blue lives matter thing, and I'm just like, I see how you're driving. Why are you so mad? Nothing's happening to you. Right. Uh, <laughs> I'm just like, you're I don't want to be on this highway with you. Um, <laughs> so we can't be afraid of them. I mean, we we can or can't, but like we shouldn't base our fear on well, maybe they'll say something, right? Right? Especially because no matter what, like laws change and so forth, a simple thing as asking people how they identify is not going to become illegal. It just doesn't make sense. It doesn't fit their agenda to just because you just say no, just don't. You're not required to answer. So just and this is New York, exactly. So, so it's like, what are you doing? Yeah. Um, so, you know, we can't, it reminds me of like TESOL, the TESOL organization, when I sort of realized TESOL would never do anything, not only did they do that thing, which is in my book, of them putting together a special issue of old articles, and I'm like, that's not special. <laughs> they were like, they put out a special issue in like July 2020 that was about like, they said, it was collaboration between TESOL Journal and, TESOL, and another TESOL Journal, which should you know, just so quarterly, right? There's two, they do turn, they do one that's every month and one that's quarterly. Um, they said, uh, this special collaboration, first time ever, right? And I'm like, great. 
I'm surprised academia put together a bunch of articles in like two months. And then it turned out that they didn't because they, they did. Uh, there were good articles in there. So yeah, like, that's but okay. like also mark articles what it is. Like, yeah. hey, here's some pivotal things that we need to re-remember because we've strayed so far. You know, like, say something else. Don't, like, right. yes, package it. Like, it's not a special issue. It's like a compendium of recent published articles. There you go. We're like a spin team now for this. Right. Because <laughs> like, I know that it's, it, was, it wasn't even the articles, some of which were good, some of which I didn't like as much. But there was enough good in there that if that had just been a regular issue, it would have been a really good issue. Mm. Right? There was enough stuff that I cite in my work. Like this article by Rooker and I that's about EFL recruitment and whiteness. It's like that's in there, right? It's good work, right? Uh, but it was the way it was presented that did pissing me off for two years, right? That they really they thought they were doing something. Yeah, we're really they doing it. Doing something, you know? And so I don't know, you know, it, it, it so to me that, that's a problem. The fact that these things are an issue is is a problem. And uh I guess it leads me all the way back to the beginning of this to sort of close us off here, which is to say, honestly, sometimes I think that doing these this show for a couple of hundred people who listen and giving talks to a couple of hundred people and writing a book that some people might read. Sometimes I think that that has more influence than the traditional path. And along with teaching itself, which I do think still matters. So. Sure, sure. No, I think you're, I think you're right. And I think the more other spaces, the more other institutions allow for that to be a part of more scholars' um, trajectories, I think the better off everybody will be, right? Like, the more we fight against like this continuous push to include more and more publications by the time you go up for tenure or, um, you know, that's increasing every single year. Like the more you push back on that and the more you are creative in the ways that like scholars share their expertise and get people actually talking and actually engaging with one another in public or even, even like just in a, not just in a classroom, but even in your own classrooms, but also more like public engagement of scholarship if those types of things are celebrated and also count, I mean, <laughs> I'm using scarecrow, like count towards tenure and promotion, maybe if we can restructure some of those policies, then we might actually be able to do more than just publish in inaccessible journals. Um, I mean, people can do both anyway. Um, you know, you can publish in inaccessible journals and be a more public-facing scholar and all of that, too which is, you know, both and, you know, which is good. But also it no one's going to do that because there's no time. There is no worried nope. about losing your job. And so it's like if we kind of rework the whole thing and send it up the line and keep pushing back on, you know, the provost and if other institutions can continually do that, then I don't know. I've lost hope in academia completely. So saying all this, <laughs> doing all this. For the last two years has been difficult um, because I'm like, mm, let me pack it in. Um, you can't change a structure like this. You can't. There's no way to make higher education anti-oppressive in any sense. But maybe there are some strides. I think that if we accept its limitations and stop pretending it's something that it isn't, then and I'm not saying it won't continue to have many problems. 
But like, I think to me, my biggest issue with it is that inherent belief that it is something special. Yeah. Right. I think teaching is special, but that has nothing to do like that. No, that's not. not that's not the. That's not the. Doesn't belong to academia. Right. Right. I think exactly. writing is special, but that again it doesn't belong to academia. Yeah. Right. I think new ideas are special, but I don't think that belongs to academia. I think all the things that are special to academia don't actually have anything to do with academia. Yeah, and academia likes to hold them dear and say, "This is who we are, and this is this is the thing that's special. It's the special issue. It's the special issue effect." Like, I really hope that after the book comes out, some like provost or something reads it and then tries to recruit me, and I'm and then I can say to them because I don't care anymore. How much are you going to pay me? Yes. <laughs> because like that sounds like greedy or whatever, but it's like I oh no I'm not considering doing your nonsense for less money at this point. No, don't say how much to say I will only go for this. Well, right. Well, well I, don't I mean, I mean it, it'll depend on certain things like right, some, right, of the, right, some, right. some of the places that the, the actual range is. Yeah, but don't just ask them, you know. But yeah, right. Yeah, no, there's no no. Do not be in this in this system with. I don't even know what the what the dollar amount is, <laughs> but. It's the, the only thing that would be is that, like, then me going to give keynotes would be part of it, right? Yeah. That just, just in the, just, I mean, just mean financial, you know? Because, like, I could be over here and be high-minded about, like, well, no, I should not care about the paycheck. I'm like, trust me. That is something people who don't have paychecks, who don't worry about their paychecks. Who don't worry about money, yeah. yeah. Not don't have No, paychecks, there is but. no, there's no, you're, whatever, we're in a capitalist system, there's no ethical consumption anyway. So, hey. You you need to get paid. You need to be compensated for your labor. And the weird thing well is, it was the contingent hope labor that got me the book. And I kind of I'm kind of annoyed that that's what happened. That it actually like we were like do these things. Maybe somebody will see you. Literally, my book is the story of like I did a thing for exposure and I got exposure and then they found me. It's like what they tell you. It's what they tell you. Like the actual oh, no, thing. It worked. It worked because I just I gave a talk and then. Some, the person who asked me to give a talk said, can you write a summary of the talk, which is like a 500 word. I mean, yeah, okay, fine. Yeah. Um, and then someone read the summary. Didn't even watch the talk. She read the wow. summary and then emailed me. Okay. I was like, well, that's how I got on this. It would have been very easy to say, no, I'm not going to write a fucking summary. I already gave the talk. Leave me alone. Right? right. Because it was somebody I had affection for. She was my professor in my master's program. I was like, sure. All right. She trusted. Was. And she, but she was right though. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it's just like, uh. Ooh, that's gotta feel, it's like do, uh, doing the thing, being the, like, doing it all right. I mean, following the steps of this, of this progress. Oh, no. But it worked, hey. <laughs> well, right. And when I tell people the story and I'm going, I was on a podcast last night, I'll be on another, I'm, you know, I gotta, I'm You've doing my it. own, I'm doing, I gotta do my own marketing basically, right? They, they, they're like the the publisher's like we will send it through our listserv. I'm like who reads your fucking list? But like <laughs> <laughs> like list what 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 century? Right. Like, <laughs> you, I don't even know what that is. It just means a bunch of people on an email. But it's your just email, like but the fact that you to... still call it a listserv yeah. is from it's like it's, do you use Netscape? Like what <laughs> what are you doing? What are you? Do- I know what Walk they me mean. Through the process of you sending this out, <laughs> right? You know, I know what you're talking about, right? So <laughs> I just think it's funny that it actually worked, um, and we'll see. Because like, all I want, I 
the book is not any academic book is not going to be like some huge money maker. Even if it's very popular, like, and I'm not necessarily expecting that. What I hope from the book, because it says it in the book, is that people reach out to me in good faith and we can do something because of it. That's what I want from the book. Like, and you know, give talks and all that, but that was already happening. But like, if you I want. Them- you know, if you have a white woman who's like, hey, I've never thought about this before, you can sub me in if you're like, I'm not, I don't want to do 101 right now. <laughs> well, I mean, we'll see because like I get one or two emails. When I would give all these webinars, I tend to get one or two emails afterwards, most of which are positive, And I get like one racist email out of 10. Right. And that's talks for a couple of dozen people. Yeah. So one would. So on the one hand. You would think more people would read the book than go to an individual talk. On the other hand, it's an entire book, so you actually have to do some work. Uh, mm-hmm. And so we'll see what the – because if I'm getting some deluge, then I, I may have to, like, delegate. Right. It's not that many people. I'm half kidding, but for – I mean, and what – Well, it depends. It, it depends on if, it, if it's an exasperating question. Because, like, when I gave a talk in June, this person uh, – and this was uh, important for the milestones of me doing these things because it was the first time I gave a full keynote in person. I gave some keynotes on a webinar, but a webinar keynote's like, I'm sitting Yeah, it seems to me yours. I'm I'm sitting in this chair. Okay. I had the whole (laughs) shirt and everything. Right. So I gave the thing and it was good, but it was the first time, like, you didn't have to know who I was to go to that conference. Right. I'm just on the program. And maybe a few people signed up because of me, but these are probably people, they didn't travel. It's New Jersey, TESOL, so they're people from New Jersey, and they went there because they probably always go, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, that means that this, and this was the breakfast one. So these, these are the people who got up on the, on the last day of the conference. Like, it was oh, like, last day too? Last but, but there was a, but it was a full day. Cause some places like the last, last day like, ends with breakfast. Last time I was on here, we talked about conferences too. <laughs> yeah. But like, you know, cause you know, sometimes like the last day is not really a day. Right, yeah, we talk, I think we talked about like but, drinking through the last day or something. Yeah, yeah, know. this is not, this was not that day. Okay, it was, okay, like, okay. It was like stuff, and I did a, a last and then, real day. Got and it. then I had a breakout session afterwards. This woman asked me this inane question about somehow she started from we teach all these dead white guys in music, and I'm like, oh, so she gets it, like how we shouldn't necessarily be doing that in language teaching, and she's like. But there's a reason for that. I'm like, oh, no. Oh. Uh, and then she went on this thing um, and saying, so, and then somehow the last thing she said, because I was trying to think of a response the whole time. And then the last thing she said, or are you saying we shouldn't teach English because it's racist? And I'm like, that's not what I said. Uh, <laughs> I actually engage with that very specific argument in the book. Like, there's a part of there where I say, someone once told me that the act of teaching English was racist, and I don't know how I, I didn't know how to feel about that at the time, and then I just sort of go through my thoughts on it, right? I don't really end up with, a, of course it's racist, but I do end up with, like, the whole thing is tied to the system, so yes, but it's not uniquely so. Right. Like, it is. The unique. But then so is, but like, so is, like, buying a house. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's like, right, it's like, like everything, let's pillow. It's like, like it is, <laughs> but it's not extraordinarily so. Yeah. Like exceptionally so. More adjectives to start with letter E. Adverbs. Um, <laughs> but she, adjectives for this yeah. podcast. <laughs> she, um, she asked that question. I answered her question and she was by chance the last person and then I had to go to my breakout session and she came to it. So she, she wasn't getting it, but she was actually trying. Hey, curious. She didn't have to come to the breakout session. She kept doing her thing because it was like the, the, 
keynote was a couple hundred people and the breakout session was like 30, 35 people maybe, right? Mm-hmm. Could have been more, but that's how many were there. And I broke them into three groups and we were talking about how to operationalize what I actually said. And I'm saying, I'm not going to tell you what to do. You're going to figure it out. And then I'm going to help you talk about it. So I broke them into like regions. Of like, if you work in a rural area, go over here. If you work in a suburban area, go if you're in an urban area. So they could talk about their issues in their different states or with different locations. Yeah. And uh I could hear her in her little section just saying the same shit. And like the other people had, we had people had masks on, so I couldn't see their whole faces. But like I could see, I could see the eyes of people like, you know, just like lady. <laughs> the lady <laughs> you know just lady. like come on but again who's to say she didn't she didn't need that to get to the next stage sure I'm, it's exasperating yeah, but like that. she was actually trying to challenge herself and then we ran into each other on the way out and she said thank you okay so i do think that if she's in her room reading my book and she doesn't know any of my work, she probably doesn't, well, if she, if she's going to buy the book, she'll probably finish the book. Like, why would you spend the money for no reason? But I mean, aside from that, <laughs> but if someone gave her the book. Yes. Right. Right. She probably, if she didn't know me or in my work, she just would be like this and throw it away. Right. Uh, maybe, maybe not. But because, well, I'm saying if she didn't know me, if she hadn't spoken to me, she hadn't seen my talk, she hadn't right. been in my breakout session. Right. Now, now, I don't know if she'll hear about my book specifically, but if she were to do it now, maybe now, it gets in there, at least some of it, Yeah. right? Maybe it gets over her clear defensiveness, but, like, she clearly was grappling with that defensiveness. Right, and wanted almost, was looking for somebody to help the cognitive dissonance to go away. Right. Either say, yes, you're right, and, and this dude, what is he talking about, or... Okay, here's some nuance there, but that, that second part takes a lot more time and effort to, because I've been there, grew up a color of white woman, right? So like, I know that feeling where you're like, I feel some type of way about this, but I'm not sure like where to go from here. And you end up, I'm all for people having their moment. And sometimes that happens in my classes where somebody will say something. I'm like, oh, this is, a, okay, this is a teaching moment for me. And I've got to get my teaching cap on and. And, like, that is all good as long as it doesn't cause harm to other folks, which is always something that I worry about when people are taking that first step into engaging in a dialogue about racism. That, you know, you need there needs to be that push through the, the dissonance and try to work through it. And you need other folks to help you along the way. But it's obviously I'm not saying anything new. I'll know this, but it's dicey there when if white folks are causing harm in those conversations. Yeah, and it's it's hard, you know, and, like, sometimes I worry if I'm up for it or not. That's part of the reason I'm glad I don't have a specifically academic job because I don't really have to think about it most of the day. I mean, not racism, but my scholarship. If I'm yeah. off being a professor and my whole life is this stuff, I really got to think about it all day long. And I think that it might, and, you know, you better watch out for this, I think it's easy to get calcified if all you think about is your research when you're not actually teaching. Uh, yeah. Because yeah. then, then you, to keep going on these projects, you got to believe in your projects because there's a lot of work, you know. I understand, like, if I had gotten sick of my dissertation, and I was sick of writing it eventually, but, like, if I had gotten sick of the topic, oh, I understand why people don't finish these degrees. Totally. You know, I get it. Like, and I see... 
You're just I, like living it, breathing it. Yeah. yeah, I saw, I saw, I remember I was in this group where people who were working on the doctorates and a lot of them post their like recruitment materials in there for, cause a lot of people in the group and the, the people happen to qualify, right? Yeah. And I'm just like, how specific of a group did you pick for this? And it's no wonder you can't find anybody. It's like, I'm looking for people who've been principals for 1.37 years <laughs> in the states of Tennessee and Kentucky from 1981 to 1974. And I'm like, wait a second. <laughs> and they're just like, I don't have enough people. I'm just like, uh, and I'm just, but I mean, that's an advisor problem, because a lot of these right. programs. It's an IRB modification. <laughs> yeah, you know, like because that, that's a that's a, like an advisor who's just like, sure, do what you want. Yeah, uh, well, I feel that sometimes though, and I've got like 15 research students. I'm like, we'll see. <laughs> well, I mean, but I mean, I I get it too. I get it, and it, it's hard, but it's just like I I offered my school, like I'm not employed by you, but I said if you have any students who are getting stuff, making decisions, send them to me, and I will help them make a decision. I think a lot of doctoral issues, research issues, are because people, they either make a decision and it's a harmful one. They're like, it it will be easy to get this done because there's so much literature on this horseshit, and I'm just going to add to it. Yeah. Right? Because that's That's not going to (laughs) explain. Yeah. Well, some people, for some people, it is, right? Yeah. And then for others who really do want to try and do something, they're like, I'm going to try to do everything. And I'm like, but, but. But, but stop. Yeah. This doesn't, your dissertation does not have to change the world. Like, right. It's just like, chill. I have no idea why 80 people have downloaded my dissertation, but they have. Um, I, that's a, that's a lot of the, I don't know why. Maybe it's because it's short. It's a short dissertation, right? So maybe they see <laughs> no, but it. Like, to see that it's short, you'd have to download it, right? Well, that's true. I don't know. On the page, I don't know if on the page it says how many pages it is. I don't think you would like Google Scholar, like short dissertation. Well, it's, it's on the, like, it's on the CUNY website, but, um, Okay. The, like all of the CUNY, like they're all, all the CUNY. They're all on there. I know how that, yeah, yeah, I know yeah. how it works. Yeah. So, um, so I don't know, but maybe I would hope that my dissertation, if people in my program would look at it, they'd be like, oh, we could do something different here. Mm. You know, cause I'm not, you know, and I think that I could keep plumbing it for future like books and stuff like that, because I think that there's useful stuff in there. Anyway, I have to do my actual job. So uh, I'm going to go back to doing that. Me too. Uh, That's my job today. (laughs) Yeah, jobs. Uh, But, you know, it's uh, nice to touch base on this unresolved issue. I'm sure there will be more. Um, And, you know, if, if anyone wants to talk about this sort of thing, you know where to find me. I didn't press the button yet, so you're supposed to say something. Oh, good. No, sorry. I thought you were, I thought you put a hand up, like a wait a minute hand. No. <laughs> like, I was trying okay, to Okay, so, like so I was like, I'll there. just wait a minute, then I got it. Uh, All right, yeah. Well, yeah, if anybody wants to talk about, I don't know, what do I like to talk about? Uh, what I've said about academia, mm, reach out. Was I didn't even tell people where you were. Doesn't All right, right. Dr. Elizabeth King, Associate Professor of Child and Family Development at Missouri State University. There you go. All right, folks. I will see. See, uh, you will. There's no. I'll say. See, I'll see you back here in two weeks, listeners. Like I'm gonna be talking to all of you, but you can all listen to a new episode in two weeks. And as I warned you, this is the first of probably three or four where I'm talking about issues that are raised in my book because you need to buy it. 
So I hope that you all do so. And there's a discount available uh, if you go to the website, the website being in the show description. So I hope you all take the company up on that offer, despite the fact that it means I make less money. But and that is until September, correct? Yes, until September 30th, because that's when September. the book comes out. Okay. So, so basically until, re- until release date, you get a discount. Like that's, you can't do better than that. So, you know, aside from the fact that I get a discount forever because I'm an author. But, you know, you, you would think, you would think. I would like to hold the book in my hand because I'm the author, but I'm not going to get it until the book is published. And by the time it's published, everybody's going to have it. So I'm like, okay, fine. Do I get it for you? <laughs> yeah, well, if you're one of the people on the list, they do give it to you. I can't remember if I gave you an electronic copy or a regular copy. They asked um, my address. <laughs> okay, well then, well, you're not going to get it before me. You're going to get it the same time as I Okay, okay, okay. You get, <laughs> it before, you get it before everybody else, but you won't get it before me. Sorry so. to flex like that. <laughs> yeah, so. All right, all right. Thanks for joining me this afternoon. Dr. King, and uh, we will always continue to talk, I'm sure. We've got enough to talk about. Yeah, thanks for having me.